We are five weeks in on this new series. The lights went out. Did you touch something, Chuck? Chuck's the guy we blame now for stuff, just in case you're wondering. We just blame Chuck for everything. Uh, hit, hit the stage. Uh, I don't know. Hit a button. <laughs> Push buttons, Chuck. Push buttons. Push the stage sermon button. Push the stage full button. What, what do you, okay, don't touch anything, quick. That's interesting, I've never, we don't even have a setting, there must be a, there's mice in the wiring. Uh, what does the old adage say, if when Satan fell from heaven, he fell into the choir loft? I would say he fell into the sound system. Today, I'd say he fell into the lighting system. Can we just agree that technology is horrible? Can we just, uh, I don't believe that. In fact, I love technology, and we use as much of it as we can to get the message across, but anyway, we're going to forge on. Even if you can't see me, I'm not that handsome anyway, so you're welcome. All right. Um, we are five weeks into our Saved series. We're talking about what it means to be saved, not just what the word means, but what the actual meaning is. We've talked about a lot of different things so far. We've tried to drive home that being saved is really not the right question, that we need to ask people not, are you saved or have you been saved? But we need to ask people the question, do you follow Jesus? Because once you become saved, that is the beginning of a process of following Christ that should continue as you grow up and as you grow older. Last week, we talked about a really popular topic, discipline. Everybody loves to talk about discipline. And we shared that, that there are some kinds of discipline that, that are enforced upon us, like when we're children and our parents discipline us. And I talked a little bit about how I still believe that's important. I do want to reiterate the fact that I believe it is important that when discipline does occur, that it is for the benefit of the person being disciplined and not just to make the person doing the disciplining feel better. You understand what I'm saying? It is not an appropriate thing for us as adults to take out our frustration on our children just because we can. However, it is necessary for us to give them guidance and to move them in the direction that we believe God has called us to move them because as parents, that's our responsibility. As we grow older, we learn to self-discipline and self-discipline is that thing that, that allows us to build habits and to do things consistently that will lead to us accomplishing what God has called us to do. And so it's important that we discipline ourselves. Today, the title of the sermon is Commitment Can Get You Committed. Commitment can get you committed. If you've ever read the stories of Jesus and you read between the lines, you will discover that there are lots of places in the story of Jesus where Jesus did things and said things that caused the people around him to raise an eyebrow or two and to wonder about his sanity. Why is he acting like he does? Why does he do the things that he does? Why does he say the things that he does? The reason that the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah is because he did not act as they expected the Messiah to act, nor did he bring about the kingdom that they expected him to bring. And so in their minds, Jesus was kind of off a little bit. How many of you will agree to the fact that you're off just a little bit? Amen? There's a couple of us. Yeah. Jesus said things that drove people away. And the funny part is, he often did that on purpose. 
Because when the crowds began to follow him and he realized he had a huge following, several occasions he said things to them that were deliberately designed to let them know that they couldn't just ride his coattails into heaven, but if they were going to follow him and be his disciples, that there were some responsibilities that they had to bear. One of the places where we read about Jesus saying something that probably had people thinking he was a little bit nuts is in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. And this is one of my least favorite passages in the Bible. I'm always telling you about my most favorite. This is one of my least favorite passages. It says this, if you want to be my disciple, this is the New Living Translation, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, if you read that text, you will recognize, I hope, immediately that hating anybody is not what the Bible says we're supposed to do. You guys got that, right? If that didn't set off bells and whistles in your head and make you wonder what in the world Jesus was thinking, then there's a problem with everything I've been teaching for the last 10 years here, right? Because we're told throughout Scripture that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Who is the first and foremost neighbor we should love? Our father, our mother, our wife, our husband, our children. Those are the people we should be loving the most. So obviously there's more going on here than meets the eye. Now Luke 14, 26 in the New American Standard Bible is a little bit cleaner. It's a little more direct from the translation. Let me read this to you, and I have it. It's going to be on the screen as well. In the New American Standard, it simply says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you might have noticed that the New Living puts in there an extra little statement that's supposed to help qualify this. Because even the translators of the New Living Translation read what they had translated or what other people had translated and said, this is not good. (laughs) People are going to start teaching that we should hate people, and that's not what the rest of Scripture teaches. So what is Jesus talking about? Listen, there are times when you're reading Scripture when you need to ask questions. And if something seems to not fit, there's more to meets the eye. And you need to dig until you figure it out. And the the people who translated the New Living Translation say it this way. You must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Now, what they're trying to say is this, is that Jesus was saying to his followers, if you're going to follow me, then your love for me, your passion for me, your drive to follow me, and your obedience to me should be so strong and so powerful that by comparison, every other relationship in your life should look like hatred. You get what I'm saying? So in other words, Jesus is saying, you should love me so much that your love for your spouse or your love for your children actually resembles hatred. There's also the small matter of hatred didn't necessarily mean the same thing back then than we use it today. Today, when we think of hatred, my mind immediately goes to hate crimes or things like that. We think of people doing violence to one another. In the Greek, in their time, that word that's translated hate basically means to ignore, to have nothing to do with, because they were way more passive in their hatred than we have become in the United States of America because they didn't have Facebook. Amen? You see, they learned. If I don't like that person, if I don't care for them, I'm just going to ignore them. I'm going to walk away. I'm just going to not 
take any part of them. And so, in a sense, it isn't that it's an active hatred, it's more of a passive hatred. And so if you look at these two things together, it kind of makes sense. But let's go back to the fact that people probably, when Jesus said this, thought, what in the heck is he talking about? What in the world does he mean by that? How can this be true when he just told us yesterday that we're to love our neighbor like, like ourselves and we're to turn the other cheek when someone slaps us? This makes no sense. Let me tell you something. Jesus said a lot of things that probably led people to the conclusion that he was crazy. But you know what? Jesus isn't the only one. He's not the only one throughout Scripture that people thought was nuts. In fact, let's just do a little survey of the Scriptures here for a moment. Bear with me. Noah. Remember Noah? Good old Noah had three sons. His sons grew up, got married. Noah was living a fine life, and the Bible tells us that he was the only righteous man on the face of the earth. And so God decides to tell Noah one day, I want you to build an ark. Noah says, okay, <clears throat> what's an ark? <laughs> well, it's a boat. <clears throat> okay, what's a boat? You see, Noah lived in a region where there were no bodies of water. And, and, and God said, well, you're going to need this because I'm going to send rain from heaven. Okay, what's rain? It had never rained before. Do you people understand what's happening? Can you imagine the two old ladies from the HOA showing up at Noah's house as he's building a giant ark in his driveway? None of you people live in an HOA community, do you? It's like, man, what are you doing, Noah? I'm building a boat. Why? There's no water here. Well, it's going to rain. What's rain? Water that falls from heaven. Okay, yeah, he's nuts, he's crazy, let's just walk away. And then, to make matters worse, he didn't just build an ark, he fills it with animals. And not just the nice animals, the mean ones too. I still don't understand why he put snakes on the ark, do you? I cannot figure it out. Leave them suckers off, everybody would be happier. I mean, I said that about mosquitoes once, and somebody said, well, you know, it doesn't say there was insects on the ark, maybe they just survived. I'm pretty sure new mosquitoes will survive a nuclear holocaust, and we'll all be dead. But anyway, Noah, everybody thought he was nuts. Think about Abraham for a minute. Abraham went around telling people the visions that God had given him. My descendants are one day going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, as, as more numerous than the stars in the sky. That's what my God has promised me. And I'm sure when Noah or when Abraham was 30, people said, wow, that's nice, Abraham. And then he got to be 40 and he didn't have any children. And they're like, you still telling that story, Abraham? Got to be 50, still no kids. And this, by this point, they're just going, you know what, Abraham, we've heard it before. We don't want to hear it anymore. Obviously, there's some kind of disconnect here between you and your God because it ain't happening. He was 100 years old almost, but by the time he finally had his son. Listen, they had to think Abraham was nuts. They had to think he was crazy. How about Joseph, one of Abraham's descendants? Joseph was the youngest of 12 brothers. He would come out every morning and tell his brothers about his dreams. And, and if you just, if you're taking notes, if you're the youngest brother of 12 and you have dreams that show you, your brothers bowing down to you, don't tell them every morning. Because that's not going to make you popular. In fact, it's going to make them angry and they're going to sell you into slavery. Read the story if you want to hear the whole thing. And I'm sure his parents were probably like, oh, that silly young boy. Yeah, you, you kids, it, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And then one day he comes out of the bedroom. Hey, I had another dream last night. And the, boy, the brothers are all like, yeah, we know we're going to bow down to you. Yeah, this time mom and dad bowed down to me too. And the father's like, boy, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. You know, you don't, don't be dreaming that, right? And I'm sure everybody thought he was nuts, right? 
until he's in Egypt. And he's second in command to Pharaoh himself. And he's saving his entire family from a famine because of his ability to interpret not only his own dreams, but everybody else's. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. Moses talked to a burning bush. Now see, you don't even think that's weird, do you? I want you to imagine for a moment you're driving down the street and you see Walt outside of his house and there's a bush on fire in front of his premises and he's listening to the thing. What are you going to do? First of all, you're going to get a fire hydrant and put it out, right? You're not going anywhere near it? Boy, Walt, you're on your own, man. They are going to let you burn. That's it. It's crazy. And then not only did he listen to this burning bush, he went and did what it said. Can you imagine what that looked like from the outside looking in? How about Gideon? Gideon was a great leader of the armies of Israel that defended the nation against the Philistines. And in one of his most important battles, they were outnumbered by thousands. And Gideon basically went to the, the, the stream and the Lord told him, listen, you got to send some people home. You got too many. He sent more than half of his warriors home before the battle. How many of you realize that back in that day when they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, the one thing you could do to make sure that you won a battle was to outnumber the enemy, right? And, and he sent half of his warriors home. Do you think anybody there thought he was nuts? Absolutely. How about Joshua? Joshua, instead of going to war with, uh, what's that city? Jericho. He decides to march around the wall seven times. You know, or I'm sorry, once, one time a day for seven days and then seven times on the seventh day. I think I got that right. Somebody check me out and let me know next week. And then they just yell at the wall and it came tumbling down. Yeah, I'm sure that was a documented form of warfare back then. Just shout at people. They'll, they'll submit right away. Listen, there are example after example. Look at um, David. David's one of my favorite examples. David got a little crazy. He was a worship leader. And so that tells you something, Right? He was one of those creative types. He loved to play instruments and stuff, but he was also a great warrior. But when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to the city of Jerusalem, the Ark was their most important relic. It was their most important artifact. It was where God's presence dwelt, they believed. And so as David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city, he became so overjoyed that he danced before the Lord. And, you know, that was okay then. You know, Church of God, since then, that'll send you straight to hell. But... Um, <laughs> Back then it was okay, apparently, for him to dance. And so he's dancing as the ark is coming into Jerusalem. And his wife, who is, by the way, Saul's daughter. Saul was the previous king who didn't like David. But David married his daughter, you know, anyway. So she's looking down from the window. And she sees David dancing, let's just say, exuberantly, okay? Like exuberantly, more exuberant than like Ryan and Kathy at a wedding. I mean, that's pretty exuberant. I mean, they were, they, he was going at it. And so she's watching from the window. This is what happened. This is the conversation when they got back. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was his wife, came out to meet him. She said in disgust. How many of you men have ever had your wives say something to you in disgust? Yes, Dennis, I see your hand. Um, he said to him in disgust, how distinguishing the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. Boy, that's a scathing kind of thing. Listen to David's retort. I love this. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. 
He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing, listen to this, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. I'm not sure what that reference is about. You can study that on your own. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. I don't think she was barren. I think she got ignored for the rest of her life. I don't know about you. But anyway, David danced so hard that even his wife said, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. Just a few more. Daniel was crazy enough to boldly defy the most powerful king on the earth, even though he knew that he was going to end up in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied the very same leadership, the very same king and country, in order to not bow down to the idol, knowing they would end up where? In a fiery furnace. Nehemiah built a wall nobody thought could even be rebuilt, and he did it in record time. Read the story. Mary... In the New Testament, Mary was almost a single mother because she was betrothed to another person and yet was with child even though she was a virgin. And her excuse, God's the father. Would that hold water today? No, and I'm sure it didn't then. Listen, everybody thought she was nuts. Everybody thought her, her, her fiancé Joseph was crazy when he decided to believe her, but an angel had said it to him, so of course that makes it okay. If you want to see the people with the white coats in the van, just tell somebody that an angel told you, and they'll show up, I guarantee it. Joseph believed her because an angel said it. Look at John the Baptist. He was like a homeless dude who ate locusts and wore animal skins. He was kind of an outcast even in his day. Now, some of you are saying, Pastor, he ate locusts and honey. You forgot the honey. Friends, I eat honey. That's not crazy, right? Locusts, that's crazy. You can have all of them yourself. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell in the upper room on the disciples, and they spilled out into the street in their exuberance, everyone believed that they'd had a little bit too much to drink. That's what it says. These men must be drunk with wine, but it's only 8 o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. That may not be the right time. Everybody thought they were drunk. Everybody thought they were nuts until they heard the mighty acts of God being proclaimed in their own language. The church leaders themselves thought Peter and Paul were crazy to allow Gentiles to be Christians without becoming Jews. And almost every one of the disciples was killed for their faith before, before their lives ended. That's how they died. Someone thought they were either crazy or that they were disobedient enough to God that they deserved to die. Listen, if you live long enough and you follow Jesus, someone will eventually call you crazy. And if not, you're not doing it right. Did you hear me? If you choose to follow Jesus, there will come a point in time where the dedication and the love that you have for him and your willingness to obey him will lead you to a spot where you are asked by God to do something that everybody around you will look at and go, are you sure? Are you, did God really say that to you or is this last night's lasagna talking? Do you really believe God would want you to step out in faith like that? Do you really believe God would want you to go to those people? Do you really believe that God meant love everybody? Are you sure? Eventually somebody will think that you're nuts if you follow Jesus. Because following Jesus and living for him, for every single one of these people that I've mentioned, was a radical and active 
active acceptance of his person, his plan, his will, and his word. If you follow Jesus, people are going to think you're nuts because following Jesus creates a radical change in your life. Um, I forgot to read this quote at the beginning, but I want to share it with you now. Um, A.W. Tozer speaks to this issue, and I think the words that he uses are very poetic and very good, so I've got them on the screen for you so you can read along. He says, let us get it straight. Jesus Christ does not offer us salvation as though it is a decoration or a bouquet or some addition to our garb. In other words, our Christianity shouldn't be something we wear as an accessory. That's what he's trying to say. He says, plainly, throw off your old rags, strip to the skin. He's not being literal. Let me dress you in the fine, clean robes of my righteousness, all mine. Then if it means loss of money, lose it. If it means the loss of a job, lose it. If it means persecution, take it. If it brings the stiff winds of opposition, bow your head into the wind and take it for my sake. If you follow Jesus, he will eventually call you to lose everything so that you can gain far more. That's the life that we live with him. John chapter 1, verses 11, 13, talks a little bit about, again, the same kind of thing. This is that verse where John essentially is talking about how Jesus came. This is what it says. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Listen, Christianity is a radical commitment. It's a decision that we make to follow Jesus no matter what. And the people that Jesus came to rejected him because he did not look like they thought he ought to look. The most dramatic change that you will ever go through as a human being is exactly what John's talking about here, the analogy he uses of being reborn. Nicodemus talked to Jesus about this too. Nicodemus asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what did Jesus say? You must be born again. I want you to consider for a moment, for a moment the, what, what really happens at birth because it's a profound change. Before birth, each and every one of us grow in our mother's womb. We know that, right? Everybody here is old enough to know that? That stork story, completely false. When you start to grow in your mother's womb, you are in the best place ever. I don't say that because I can remember or anything. But imagine for a moment the situation that the baby is in inside the mother's womb. They are forever protected. No one can get to them without going through mom. And if you've ever tried to go through a mom, you know that ain't happening. The baby is protected in a warm place filled with nice soft fluids around them. I'm not going to talk about what those fluids are because it's kind of gross. But they're in there, they're protected, and the baby doesn't have to really do anything. Its eyes blink open and close. We know that through sonograms. But they really can't see anything because there's nothing to see, right? Their eyes blink open and close. Their hands move around. Sometimes it looks like they're smiling. Most people understand that's probably just gas if they have gas in the womb. I don't know. 
But they do different things and they live in there and for all intents and purposes, they have everything they need without having to lift a finger. I mean, they could probably sit there if they wanted to and watch the food come through that little cord you know, that comes. How many of you would love to see somebody invent that again? I don't even have to eat anymore, just give it, give it to me in a cord that attaches directly to my stomach. No, nobody? I'd just like to get my coffee that way if I could, you know, leave it in all day. But the kid doesn't have to do anything. He's safe, he's protected, it's quiet because again, the, the fluid around them softens the sounds that are around them. Every once in a while, it hears a very loving and caring voice talk to him or hears maybe the voice of a father or a sibling and becomes kind of comfortable with the way those voices sound through the walls of the womb and it's the greatest place you know, ever to live. And then, because of the necessity of life, there comes a moment where that all has to end for that baby. Now, I would assume that if that baby had the ability to choose, <laughs> the baby would say, I'm going where? <laughs> no. Sometimes I even think the mom might say, nope, not happening. We're going to just keep it right here where it belongs. But we all know that physically speaking, that's impossible. It's not good for the mom or for the baby. And so a change has to happen. And in the process of childbirth, a lot of things change for that child. That child goes from being in a nice, safe, warm place that is quiet and all the sounds are dulled by the water around it to coming into a cold, sterile operating room where everybody and their uncle is running around with masks on, screaming things. Sometimes they even swat him on the butt so that he can cry. And for the first time, the baby hears its own voice and probably scares them half to death and suddenly the voices of mom and brother and dad all sound extremely loud and sharp and, and oh man, everything changes in that moment. It is a, it's a moment of pain. It's a moment of confusion. It's a moment of messiness for both the mother and the baby. I'm not gonna include the father because every time I talk about birth and fathers, I just get yelled at. You guys really don't do anything. Just stand there. But it's all our fault. Amen? But it is the sharpest and most profound transition that you will ever experience in your physical life, going from the womb to the world. And once that transition takes place, you are changed forever and you can never go back. And from that moment forward, you are on a journey that you never imagined in, in the womb that you would ever have to take. You have to grow up. You have to learn to eat with your hands and, and put things in your mouth. You have to learn to speak. You have to learn to walk. All of these things lie before you and you have no idea. All you know is that everything just changed. And here's what I love. John uses that analogy to describe what happens to us at the moment that we are saved. He uses that analogy to describe what happens when, in his words, we believe him and accept him. In the Greek, that word means to take hold of him. And when we accept Jesus into our lives, the analogy that he uses is one of birth. Friends, I gotta tell you, there are a lot of people who claim to, be accept, to accept Jesus and you don't see any kind of transformation at all. You don't see anything change at all. Nothing happens to indicate that there has been any kind of change in their life at all. But let me tell you, if it's a birth, there's gotta be some change. Because just as it is in the physical, so it is in the spiritual. When you are reborn spiritually, it is not, he says, the result of human passion or plan. How many of you know babies are born either out of passion or plan? Tori and I had several of each, right? 
passion, plan. Some of them plan, not passion. Listen, spiritual birth has nothing to do with passion or plan. It has everything to do with being a gift from God. It is from the Father. It is a birth that comes from Him, and only through Him can we be born. It is at times painful and messy and difficult for the person being born and those around them. Because when you see a person begin to change so profoundly as Christ can change them, you begin to wonder, why is there such a dramatic change in this person's life? And often others don't understand that change if they haven't experienced it for themselves. And it's in those moments that they start to wonder, has, have they lost it? Why are they suddenly acting different? Why do they suddenly want to feed themselves spiritually? Why are they no longer available to just sit in the womb and enjoy? Why do they have to always be about the Father's business? You see, birth is just the beginning, spiritually and physically, of of a radical new life, now lived for the Creator, and not just for yourself any longer. And as you begin to grow and people see the changes in you, they will be startled and surprised at first. But if you are being clothed by the new life that God has for you, then they will begin to see the person and the character of Christ shining through your life and they will wonder what has changed that made you so different. We are, as Tozer says, supposed to strip to the skin put on the new life that God offers and be ready to face the consequences of whatever that might bring. Change must come and we have to be willing to accept it. Again, I love the fact that that the word in the Greek is take hold of. Listen, it is not a passive acceptance that leads us to new birth in Christ. It is a profound desire to take hold of Christ with all that is in us and to become all that he wants us to be. But the epidemic in the church of Jesus Christ, especially in America, is this. We have people who, like Tozer said, who want to be saved and not be reborn, not change in their whole person, but simply put on the the cufflinks of Christianity. And by that, all men will know that I'm a disciple, right? If I just wear the the cufflink, if I just accessorize with Christian garb, a little bit. I can still hold on to my own clothes. I can still hold on to my own life. I can still have the habits that I, I don't really want to get rid of yet. I can still hold on to, to selfishness. I can still hold on to greed. But you know what? I'll give God my Sunday mornings and that'll be the cufflinks. You know? I'll give God a Wednesday night from time to time. That'll be my tie. And instead of stripping down naked and letting God clothe us in new clothes... We're trying to just hold on to the old while trying to also wear the new. Have you ever seen somebody that tried to wear two outfits at once? I saw it in an airport once. Yeah, I'm not kidding. I saw a person literally in the the airport trying to put on clothes because their suitcase was too heavy. And they had like three sets of jeans on, two shirts on, three sweatshirts. It was the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen. And you want to know what a Christian looks like who's trying to wear the old clothes and the new clothes at the same time? It's a pretty ridiculous sight and a sad sight because everybody knows the new clothes are better. The new life is better. Friends, I just want to share with you that if you truly commit to Christ, it can get you committed. 
If you follow Jesus long enough, and again, it shouldn't be our goal for people to think we're crazy. Some, some believers live like that too. There are some people out there trying to prove how crazy they are, and that's not what God calls us to do. But there will come a moment if you decide to follow Christ with all that you are where God will ask you to do something that to those around you will seem incredible, maybe even ridiculous, and may think that you're crazy. And if it hasn't happened yet, I pray that it'll happen soon because it's one of the more enjoyable experiences of living the Christian life. At least it can be. But you got to smile all the way through it or it doesn't work. Because when people are calling you crazy, the easiest thing to do is to fight back. But the best thing you can do is just admit it. Like David did, I'll become even more undignified than this is what he said. In fact, there's a song. David Crowder wrote a song. I almost made you sing it today, but I knew some of you would be angry with me if I did. It's a fun song. It's a youth song. We'll have to sing it sometime. I'll become even more undignified than this, David said. And you know what? That should be our response. Listen, God has taken me. God has all of me. If he chooses to make me even less than this, then I will choose to accept it with all my heart. Commitment can get you committed. I pray that it doesn't. But I hope that you will at least find the commitment part because following Jesus is your whole life, not just a piece of it. I've said enough. Pray with me. God, I feel a little bit this morning like I should be committed trying to, trying to communicate concepts that are that are so hard to communicate. Because this world that we live in does not see the Christian life as normal. And yet, all of us who live in this society want so desperately to be seen as normal. And it is a hard thing to strip all of the old life off and take on the new life. And then to simply live with the consequences of what that brings. Whether it's loss whether it's joy, whether it's hardship, whether it's pain, whether it's victory, whatever might come. And God, I pray that you would communicate what I seem to be unable to this morning. That when you follow Christ, it is like being reborn in a spiritual sense. Nothing will ever be the same again. And you will grow up in your spiritual walk and if you don't grow up in your spiritual walk, then it will begin to show. Because if, if a child is unable to grow, we notice that and, and we usually are quick to point out the deficiencies that might be there and, and try to do something to fix them. But for some reason in the spiritual life, when someone doesn't grow, we just see it as normal. And that should not be the norm. We should all be growing in our knowledge, in our faith, and in our willingness to obey you as our Lord and Master. We should follow you every single day. And I pray that you would help us to be willing to, seen as, to be seen as crazy for the sake of the gospel if we truly hear your voice calling us to do something that seems a little odd. God, just a few years ago, some of the people in our congregation heard you telling them that we could pay off our debt, and people said they were crazy, and look where we are now. Many years ago when this church 
wanted to buy this corner. Some of the people said they were crazy and left the church and look where we are now. Lord, tomorrow, this church might be asked to do something that takes great faith. And some of our folks and some on the outside may look at us and say, you're crazy. I pray that you would give us the courage to see where we are in 10 years. Father, lead us. If we're going to be called crazy, may it always be because we're following you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, you just look a little crazy today. And then you can be dismissed.